But I may be asked what I have to say to all the minute facts of history, forgotten never to be recovered, to the lost books of the ancients, to the buried secrets. Oh, many a gem of purest ray serene, the dark unfathomed caves of ocean bear. Full many a flower is born to blush unseen and waste its sweetness on the desert air. Do these things not really exist because they are hopelessly beyond the reach of our knowledge? And then, after the universe is dead, according to the prediction of some scientists, and all life has ceased forever, will not the shock of atoms continue, though there will be no mind to know it? To this I reply, that though in no possible state of knowledge can any number be great enough to express the relation between the amount of what rests unknown to the amount of the known, yet it is unphilosophical to suppose that with regard to any given question which has any clear meaning, investigation would not bring forth a solution of it if it were carried far enough. Who would have said a few years ago that we could ever know of what substances stars are made, whose light may have been longer in reaching us than the human race has existed? Who could be sure of what we shall not know in a few hundred years? Who can guess what would be the result of continuing the pursuit of science for 10,000 years with the activity of the last hundred? And if it were to go on for a million, or a billion, or any number of years you please, how is it possible to say that there is any question which might not ultimately be solved? I am aware of a world spread out in space endlessly, and in time, I am aware of it. That means, first of all, I discover it immediately, intuitively, I experience it through sight, touch, hearing, etc. Animal beings also, perhaps men, are immediately there for me. I look up, I see them, I hear them coming towards me. I grasp them by the hand. Speaking with them, I understand immediately what they are sensing and thinking, the feelings that stir them, what they wish or will. They too are present as realities in my field of intuition. Philosophy begins in wonder, and at the end, when philosophic thought has done its best, the wonder remains. There have been added, however, some grasp of the immensity of things, some purification of emotion by understanding. Yet there is a danger in such reflections. An immediate good is apt to be thought of in the degenerate form of a passive enjoyment. Existence is activity, ever merging into the future. The aim at philosophic understanding is the aim at piercing the blindness of activity in respect to its transcendent functions.
the word taste has perhaps got too completely associated with arbitrary liking to express the nature of judgments of value. But if the word be used in the sense of an appreciation at once cultivated and active, one may say that the formation of taste is the chief matter wherever values enter in, whether intellectual, aesthetic, or moral. Relatively immediate judgments, which we call tact, or to which we give the name of intuition, do not precede reflective inquiry, but are the funded products of much thoughtful experience. Expertness of taste is at once the result and the reward of constant exercise of thinking. Instead of there being no disputing about taste, they are the one thing worth disputing about, if by dispute is signified discussion involving reflective inquiry. Taste, if we use the word in its best sense, is the outcome of experience brought cumulatively to bear on the intelligent appreciation of the real worth of likings and enjoyments. There is nothing in which a person so completely reveals himself as in the things which he judges enjoyable and desirable. Such judgments are the sole alternative to the domination of belief by impulse, chance, blind habit, and self-interest. The formation of a cultivated and effectively operative good judgment or taste with respect to what is aesthetically admirable, intellectually acceptable, and morally approvable is the supreme task set to human beings by the incidents of experience. Propositions about what is or has been liked are of instrumental value in reaching judgments of value in as far as the conditions and consequences of the thing liked are thought about. In themselves, they make no claims. They put forth no demand upon subsequent attitudes and acts. They profess no authority to direct. If one likes a thing, he likes it. That is a point about which there can be no dispute. Although it is not so easy to state that just what is liked is as is frequently assumed. A judgment about what is to be desired and enjoyed is, on the other hand, a claim on future action. It possesses de jure and not merely de facto quality. It is a matter of frequent experience that likings and enjoyments are of all kinds, and that many are such as reflective judgments condemn. By way of self-justification and rationalization, an enjoyment creates a tendency to assert that the thing enjoyed is of value. This assertion of validity adds authority to the fact it is a decision that the object has a right to exist, and hence a claim upon action to further its existence. Hello? As it is with the world in its ordered being as a spatial present, so likewise is it with the world in respect to its ordered being in the succession of time. This world now present to me, and in every waking now, obviously so, has its temporal horizon 
infinite in both directions. It's known and unknown. It's intimately alive and it's unalive past and future. Moving freely within the moment of experience, which brings what is present into my intuitional grasp, I can follow up these connections of the reality which immediately surrounds me. I can shift my standpoint in space and time, look this way and that, turn temporarily forwards and backwards. I can provide for myself constantly new and more or less clear and meaningful perceptions and representations and images also more or less clear in which I make intuitable to myself whatever can possibly exist really or supposedly in the steadfast order of space and time. In this way, when consciously awake, I find myself at all times and without my ever being able to change this, set in relation to a world which through its constant changes remains one and ever the same. It is continually present for me and I myself am a member of it. Therefore, this world is not there for me as a mere world of facts and affairs, but with the same immediacy as a world of values, a world of goods, a practical world. Without further effort on my part, I find the things before me furnished not only with the qualities that befit their positive nature, but with value characters such as beautiful or ugly, agreeable or disagreeable, pleasant or unpleasant, and so forth. Things in their immediacy stand there as objects to be used. The table with its books, the glass to drink from, the vase, the piano, and so forth. These values and practicalities, they too belong to the constitution of the actually present objects as such, irrespective of my turning or not turning to consider them, or indeed any other objects. The same considerations apply, of course, just as well, to men and beasts in my surroundings as to mere things. They are my friends or my foes my servants or superiors, strangers or relatives, and so forth. We cannot at once doubt and hold for certain one and the same quality of being. It is likewise clear that the attempt to doubt any object of awareness in respect of its being actually there necessarily conditions a certain suspension of the thesis, and it is precisely this that interests us. It is not a transformation of the thesis into antithesis, of positive into negative. It is also not a transformation into presumption, suggestion, indecision, doubt in one or another sense of the word. Such shifting indeed is not at all free pleasure. Rather, is it something quite unique? We do not abandon the thesis we have adapted, and yet the thesis undergoes a multiplication. 
whilst remaining in itself what it is. We set it, as it were, out of action. We disconnect it, bracket it. It still remains there, like the bracketed in the bracket, like the disconnected outside the connectional system. Quietism is the attitude of people who say, let others do what I cannot do. The doctrine I am presenting before you is precisely the opposite of this, since it declares that there is no reality except in action. It goes further, indeed, and adds, man is nothing else but what he purposes. He exists only insofar as he realizes himself. He is therefore nothing else but the sum of his actions, nothing else but what his life is. Hence, we can well understand why some people are horrified by our teacher, for many have but one resource to sustain them in their misery and that is to think. Circumstances have been against me. I was worthy to be something much better than I have been. I admit I have never had a great love or a great friendship, but what is because I never met a man or a woman who were worthy of it. If I have not written any very good books, it is because I had not the leisure to do so, or if I have had no children to whom I could devote myself, it is because I did not find the man I could have lived with. So there remains within me a wide range of abilities, inclinations, and potentialities, unused but perfectly viable, which endow me with a worthiness that could never be inferred from the mere history of my actions. But, in reality, and for the existentialist, there is no love apart from the deeds of love, no potentiality of love other than that which is manifested in loving. There is no genius other than that which is expressed in works of art. The genius of Proust is the totality of the works of Proust. The genius of Racine is the series of his tragedies, outside of which there is nothing. Why should we attribute to Racine the capacity to write yet another tragedy, when that is precisely what he did not write? In life, a man commits himself, draws his own portrait, and there is nothing but that portrait. No doubt this thought may seem comfortless to one who has not made a success of his life. On the other hand, it puts everyone in a position to understand that reality alone is reliable, that dreams 
expectations and hopes serve to define a man only as deceptive dreams, a port of hopes, expectations unfulfilled, that is to say they defined him negatively, not positively. Nevertheless, when one says, you are nothing else but what you live, it does not imply that an artist is to be judged solely by his works of art, for a thousand other things contribute no less to his definition as a man. What we mean to say is that a man is no other than a series of undertakings, that he is the sum, the organization, the set of relations that constitute these undertakings. If we take in our hand any volume of divinity or school metaphysics, for instance, let us ask, does it contain any abstract reasoning concerning quantity or number? No. Does it contain any experimental reasoning concerning matter of fact and existence? No. Commit it then to the flames, for it can contain nothing but sophistry and illusion. agree with this view of Hume. But now it may perhaps be objected. How about your own propositions? In consequence of your view, your own writings, including this book, would be without sense, for they are neither mathematical nor empirical that is verifiable by experience. What answer can be given to this objection? What is the character of my propositions and a general of the propositions of logical analysis? This question is decisive. An answer to the objection is given by Wittgenstein in his book Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus. This author has developed most radically the view that the propositions of metaphysics are shown by logical analysis to be without sense. How does he reply to the criticism that in that case his own propositions are also without sense. He replies by agreeing with it. He writes, The result of philosophy is not a number of philosophical propositions, but to make propositions clear. My propositions 
are elucidatory in this way. He who understands me finally recognizes them as senseless when he has climbed out through them, on them, over them. He must, so to speak, throw away the ladder after he has climbed up on it. He must surmount these propositions, then he sees the world rightly, whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. I, as well as my friends in the Vienna Circle, owe much to Wittgenstein, especially as to the analysis of metaphysics, but on the point just mentioned I cannot agree with him. In the first place, he seems to me to be inconsistent in what he does. He tells us that one cannot state philosophical propositions, and that whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. And then instead of keeping silent, he writes a whole philosophical book. Secondly, I do not agree with his statement that all his propositions are quite as much without sense as metaphysical propositions are. My opinion is that a great number of his propositions, unfortunately not all of them, have in fact sense, and that the same is true for all propositions of logical analysis. I will not trouble the reader with any more ontology at this moment. I have already been led much further into that path than I should have desired. And I have given the reader such a dose of mathematics, psychology, and all that is most abstruse that I fear he may already have left me and that what I am now writing is for the compositor and proofreader exclusively. I trusted to the importance of the subject. 
There is no royal road to logic, and really valuable ideas could only be had at the price of close attention. But I know that in a matter of ideas, the public prefer the cheap and nasty. And in my next paper, I am going to return to the easily intelligible and not wander from it again. The reader who has been at the pains of wading through this paper shall be rewarded in the next one by seeing how beautifully what has been developed in this tedious way can be applied to the ascertainment of the rules of scientific reasoning. Nearly two years ago, the artist and academic Jenny O'Dell gave a keynote address on how to do nothing. In it, she talked about the impact of modern life's ceaseless demands on our time and attention. Quote, a situation where every waking moment has become pertinent to our making a living. Unquote. And she discussed how she herself had found respite in nature. Her talk was written for the I.O. Festival in Minneapolis described as for the creative technology community and attended by the kind of blue sky thinkers unlikely to balk at references to concepts like observational eros. Yet, when the 10,000 word transcript was published online, it went viral. Not only that, many people read it to the end. It was really a surprise that it resonated with people outside, says Odell. I've gotten a lot of responses from people saying things like, You've put words to a feeling that I've had for a long time. That a lengthy online treatise about shattered attention spans should manage to hold so many of them is ironic. It reflects wider concern. Odell writes of feeling compelled to seek refuge in her local rose garden in the days after Donald Trump became president, like a deer going to a salt lick. It really did feel necessary, like a survival tactic. She eventually understood the impulse in the words of the French philosopher Giles Deleuze. When we are riddled with pointless talk, insane quantities of words and images, the challenge is to search for little gaps of solitude and silence in which to find the rare and even rarer thing that might be worth saying. In the 18-month turnaround from Odell's keynote to Harbach, warp speed for the industry, 
publishing has become transfixed by our current way of life and the possibility of a different one, evidenced by Malcolm Harris's Kids These Days, a social critique of millennials as human capital, Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport, BuzzFeed journalist Anne Helen Peterson's forthcoming book on millennial burnout, and another on The Art of Rest by Claudia Hammond. Many commentators have zeroed in on our relationship with technology as the source of the problem. Newport advocates a 30-day digital declutter, while others suggest using apps to monitor or restrict screen time. But Odell sees that approach as too limited, not only inadequately isolating tech as the cause, but also framing it as the answer. Her proposal is that we train ourselves to assume a different perspective, one that allows us to see familiar things in a new way and in the process find momentary relief. When I try to articulate it, it sounds really abstract, but I think it's actually very practical, Odell says. If you think about your mindset when you go to a place you've never been, especially on vacation, the way that you look at things is quite different than how you would normally look at things while on your way to work. A lot of what I'm describing is trying to apply that same mindset to things that you've seen many times. You will always be surprised. Odell herself finds this state of mind most easily accessed in nature, losing herself in the study of a single leaf or patch of earth or going on meandering hikes. I can't even call it a hike because some of that is just me sitting on a rock or under a tree somewhere. I'll be on some other planet in my head, then I'll see some trail runners who clearly just got off work and it's their exercise. Whereas. I was having this almost psychedelic encounter with very specific plants. Awareness, rather than change, may be the most we can hope for. Odell has said, How to Do Nothing is not a self-help book promising simple steps to a lasting new way of life. You have to know that you're going to keep getting sucked back in and be realistic about that. She hopes, however, that learning how to do nothing may serve as self-care in the original sense that Audre Lorde intended it, as a strategy of self-preservation for activism. With inattention at the root of inaction, complacency, and even bias, she draws a link between her ideas and efforts to counter implicit racial, racial prejudice through teaching people how to see what they're not seeing. The mere investment of attention signals intention and invites returns. It's quite humbling, she says, to discover how much you've been missing. That decision to pay attention to different things or to ask those questions, to me, that's the beginning of free will. If in that abstract mental space, you can be reminded that the decision is actually yours to make, that it wasn't made for you, I think that cascades into all the other areas of your life. Like for instance, using social media, where you actually have a choice, where you didn't think you had one. 
What is necessary, she says, is refusal. She reimagines hashtag FOMO as hashtag NOMO, the necessity of missing out, and vigilance, guarding against the burnout or apathy that can result from extreme overstimulation. If attention and will are so closely linked, then we have even more reason to worry about an entire economy and information ecosystem preying on our attention. Ironically, in the wake of Odell's book, it has been possible to observe those forces' magnetic pull in action. The social critiques in her keynote have subsequently been bundled in with Silicon Valley-style life hacks, such as the idea of meditating for productivity, or proposals to alleviate the effects of capitalism with more capitalism by working harder or buying more. While mindfulness is often billed as having the revolutionary power to transform the world, Odell's book makes few promises beyond, perhaps, increased awareness and a possible coping strategy. She says, I'm genuinely interested in nothing for the sake of nothing, rather than nothing for the sake of something. Honestly, it will sound cheesy, but the impetus that is the most obvious for me is that it's a reminder that you are alive. been listening to the Eshorama podcast show number six produced in December of the year 2019 the title of the show was decline and fall of the absolute sampling of 20th century philosophy philosophers excerpted included Alfred North Whitehead, Edmund Husserl, John Dewey, Rudolf Carnap, Jean-Paul Sartre, and Charles Peirce. These and other thinkers are represented in the anthology The Age of Analysis, 20th Century Philosophers, selected with introduction and commentary by Morton White from the Mentor Philosophers series. Music by the following artists was included thanks to the Creative Commons license. Daniel Birch with Low Force. Kai Engel, Augmentations. Don Hendricks with Shrink in the Bushes. Les Quatre Postales Sonores with Birds of Dolly number one and Drops number five. Lobo Loco with Brain Instrumental Retro and Pura Somba, tongues falling from an open sky. The show was produced by yours truly, Jim Esch. Voices included 
myself and Stacy Esch, who read excerpts from the story, Jenny O'Dell on why we need to learn to do nothing. It's a reminder that you are alive. From the September 27th, 2019 edition of The Guardian. The article was written by Ella Hunt. Jenny O'Dell's book is titled How to Do Nothing, and it is published by Melville House. Be sure to tune in to previous podcast shows by searching for the Eshorama Podcast at your favorite podcasting site. Eshorama Podcast is hosted at soundcloud.com. Thank you for listening.